this Christmas season, uh, we are looking at the minor prophets. The minor prophets probably don't show up on anyone's greatest hits album of the Bible, uh, but we have looked through them, and what we've seen week after week is just uh, these powerful passages uh, that remind us of the message of Christmas, that God has promised, that God is faithful uh, to come to us to save us from our sins. And this morning, it's no exception. We will look at the prophet uh, Zephaniah. And as you're finding uh, the passage this morning, I want to tell you about a questionable decision uh, that I made this fall. I volunteered to coach my son's third grade basketball team. And uh, there's wisdom in doing things that you're not, you're not good at, things that are hard, things that will, will humble you, and I put that wisdom into practice by deciding to be a coach. Uh, I'm, I'm relatively new to coaching in, in the world of youth sports, uh, but let me tell you that it is exactly what you would expect. The kids are wonderful. Uh, they're great. It's, it's a joy to coach them, but the adults are horrible, and they mess up everything, me included. And... I knew that I was in over my head in coaching when at the tryouts, there were scouts there for the teams, and they had draft boards for the night of of the third grade draft. But after a few preseason practices, we come to our first game, I knew that we were not going to be a threat to win the league this year, um, but that I thought that we would be competitive. But the final score of our first game was 35 to 5, and frankly, it was not even that close. Um, For every... I think we had at least three turnovers for every shot we were able to get. Not every shot we were able to make, but just every shot we were able to take on the goal. And when the final buzzer sounded, I felt so embarrassed. I felt ashamed and judged. Our kids played hard. They did exactly what was told of them. Um, But I felt like a failure as a coach. I was embarrassed to go shake hands with the other team after the game. I kind of wanted to avoid the team parents after the game. I wanted to find a back door to the gym and just walk out and avoid everyone altogether. And let me just be clear, my embarrassment says more about me than it does about anyone else. That uh, no one ever said anything to me. Uh, No one ever said that that was an embarrassment. Um, But I made up in my mind that everyone in the gym thought I was a failure because of the way the team performed. The verdict was then on me, and I was a complete failure. Have you ever felt like that? Found yourself in a place in which your performance was lacking in a huge way, where you haven't measured up and you have failed miserably. Perhaps it's in a sport or it's on a stage somewhere, in a test, in a relationship. You've had a moral failure, or even yesterday, your Christmas celebration was a complete disaster, and you felt like a failure. But what I want us to think about this morning is, what if that failure is not just about one game, or one day, or one moment in time, but what if that failure was about your whole life? And what if the person rendering that verdict It's not just the person in your head or the person sitting next to you, but the person rendering that verdict is the God of the whole universe. And what if that verdict is not just for you, but that verdict is for everyone in your whole nation? 
The people in our passage this morning were under that kind of judgment. This failure was not just one incident or one person. It was their whole life and the whole nation. What hope is there for people who have failed miserably? Zephaniah answers that question by pointing them and by pointing us to the day of the Lord. So how does the day of the Lord bring hope to those who have failed? Let's read our passage, Zephaniah, the end of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. Hear God's word to us this morning. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away all your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Amen. Lord, as we look to your word this morning, we pray for the help of your spirit. We come this morning off of uh, a busy few days. Perhaps we're tired or disappointed or disillusioned, uh, distracted. Um, But we pray that uh, you would be merciful to us and gracious to us that in these few moments together that you would... Uh, Give us uh, the ministry of your spirit that this word would um, become more than just words on a page, Um, but they would become living and active to us, that you would change us by your spirit and conform us into the image of our Savior Jesus, and it's in his name we pray, amen. There are two things that I want us to see about the day of the Lord Uh, this morning. The first is that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment, and we'll see that in this passage. And secondly, the day of the Lord is a day of salvation. So salvation 
and judgment. But before we get into that, I want us to actually think about what is the day of the Lord? What is it referring to? You can't read Zephaniah without noticing the day of the Lord. There's 53 verses in Zephaniah, and at least 17 times Zephaniah refers to the day, or the day of the Lord. That's nearly one out of every three verses he's going to mention it. And it's not just Zephaniah. Dozens of times throughout the scriptures, the writers refer to the day of the Lord, Old and New Testament. It's a theme that runs throughout the scriptures. What is this day? Is it a a day that's happened or a day that's yet to come? It's not simply referring just to one day, but most simply the day of the Lord refers to a day in which the Lord comes down, which the Lord of the universe shows up on the scene. And there are generally two things that happen on the day of the Lord. When God comes, He comes in judgment, He comes in salvation that we will talk about today. But don't think of these two as two different options. You can have a bad day of the Lord, and it's a day of judgment. Or you can have a good day of the Lord, and it's a day of salvation. But uh, oftentimes, He comes in both. That He judges His enemies, and He saves His people. And oftentimes, He does it in the same act. That in the same act, His enemies are judged, and His people or say salvation and judgment go together. And so when we read, not just in Zephaniah, but in the rest of the Scriptures, when you read the day of the Lord, it's referring to a day when the Lord comes down. But to our first point, how is what we see in the book of Zephaniah, how is the day of the Lord a day of judgment? Zephaniah's prophecy has the same themes that we've been seeing over and over as we've looked at uh, the minor prophets, that God is coming in judgment. He's coming in judgment for his people, and he's coming in judgment for the entire world. The opening verse of Zephaniah tells us that he was a prophet during the reign of Josiah. Uh, Josiah was the child king. He, uh, he was king at the age of eight. He came to the throne at the age of eight. I know other eight-year-olds who want to be king, but this was actually an eight-year-old who was king. Uh, jo- Josiah's father, Amon, uh, only, was only king for two years, but Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, ruled over Judah for 55 years. In the reign of uh, Manasseh, uh, Josiah's grandfather, was one of the low points in the nation's history. There's not an official metric on, on the, the most wicked king in Israel, but Manasseh would have to be uh, near the top of that scale. It's really hard to overstate just how wicked of a king Manasseh was. He was the composite sketch of every evil thing you could imagine God's people doing. They all were in Manasseh. Uh, So much so that in 2 Kings 21, it says that Manasseh led the people of God into such evil that they were worse than the evil nations around them. That God's people were the worst of all the people around them. So when the eight-year-old Josiah ascends to the throne, God's people are in a mess. And 18 years into Josiah's reign, when he was 26 years old, they were doing some renovations to the temple. And lo and behold, they find the Bible. They find the book of the law. God's people were in such a bad place that the Bible had been gone for decades. And so, thankfully, in the mercy of God, Josiah reads the Scriptures, he repents, 
He reinstitutes worship. He kicks the wicked priest out. He gets the idols out of the temple. And he restores the Passover. And it's in this context that Zephaniah is speaking to these people who were under judgment. The first 41 verses of Zephaniah are filled with language of judgment that we've read elsewhere in the Minor Prophets. God is going to judge the sin and the wickedness of His people. And for the people that were in Zephaniah's day, this day of the Lord, the day of judgment, was a day that was on the horizon. It was coming up. Because just a few years later, the Babylonians were going to come in, and they were going to defeat uh, the people of Judah, and they were going to take them uh, into exile. But the day of the Lord in Zephaniah is not just referring to the day of the Babylonian invasion. Zephaniah also speaks of a greater, of an ultimate day of the Lord that is coming. He opens his book with this worldwide universal picture of judgment and destruction. We didn't read it, but I'll read it for you now. This is Zephaniah 1, verse 2. Notice the universal aspect of this judgment that is coming. God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. Did you notice the language of creation in there? This is almost Genesis 1 in reverse. That because of the sin and the wickedness of the people, God is going to bring down judgment and undo what he did in Genesis 1. It's a reminder to us that God takes sin seriously. That no sin, that no wicked act, that no transgression, that no violation of divine law will ever go unpunished. And that includes my sin and your sin alike. God is a holy and a righteous God. And He will by no means clear the guilty. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment against sin. But secondly, the day of the Lord is also a day of salvation. While it is true that Zephaniah paints this grim picture of judgment that is coming, and we can be tempted to think that sin and judgment, and wickedness, and suffering will have the last word, Zephaniah and all of the other prophets together remind us that that's not true. That the injustice, and the suffering, and the sin in the world will not win in the end. Zephaniah goes where all the prophets go, and where the story of the Bible goes as well. That God is the one who gets the last word. That salvation is the last word. That God will rescue his people. But what I want us to notice in our passage is who is it that is doing this work of salvation? In verses 15 to 20 that we read, there are at least 15 different times in which it says that the Lord will do something. Who is the active one in this passage? Who is the one accomplishing this salvation? We'll just start at verse 15 and I'll run down through them. That God is the one who will take away judgment. He is the one who will clear our enemies. He is the one who will be in our midst. He is the mighty one who will save us. He will rejoice over us with gladness. He will quiet us with his love. He will exult over us with loud singing. He will gather those who mourn. He will deal with our oppressors. He will save the lame and gather the outcast. He will change our shame into praise. He will bring us in. 
He will gather us together. He will make us renowned and praised among the peoples. He will restore our fortunes. Do you get the picture of what's going on there? This is a sovereign God. A sovereign God who comes and who saves His weak and needy people. It is not a picture of us working together with God. It is not a picture of a divine boost that we need in order to help us save ourselves. This is a picture of guilty and sinful people with nothing to offer, with nothing to hang their hat on. This is a salvation for weak and lowly people. The day of the Lord is the day of salvation for the weak and the humble. A few weeks ago, my wife and I watched a new documentary on, the, on Disney Plus called The Rescue. I highly recommend it. It's a great, great uh, documentary. It's the story of the Thai youth soccer team that was trapped in a cave back in 2018. You may remember it. The story captured the world's attention uh, for a few weeks. It's the story of these 12 young boys, a soccer team, that enter a cave with their coach in the Tam Luong uh, cave in northern Thailand. And while they are in the cave, a monsoon comes, and the the cave floods rapidly, and the team is stuck. They run to the highest ground they can find, but they are stranded in the cave. And days go by, and no one knows where they are, or no one even knows how to get to them. The Thai Navy SEALs, the best they can find in Thailand, they can't figure out how to get to them. They can't make it through the cave to find their way to them. And in a crazy series of events, there are these two British divers, cave divers. They are flown halfway around the world to come and to rescue these kids. These two men are lifelong cave divers. This is what they do for fun on the weekends, if you can consider that fun. And they happen to be the best in the world at cave diving. These are two men with normal day jobs in their 50s who are able to do what the Navy SEALs couldn't do. And on their first encounter, their first time that they go, they find that there is this raging river running through the cave. And there's this incredibly poor visibility. It's a disaster trying to get through. And after only a few hundred yards into the entrance to the cave, they are surprised to find a group of four pump workers, cave workers, who fell asleep on the job, uh, and they missed the evacuation signal, and so they were stuck. And so they decided uh, that they were going to try to get them out of the cave since it was just a few hundred yards, a relatively short distance to safety. So the rescuers get these pump workers and they, they give them a mask and they give them uh, part of their air tank and they tell them to swim alongside of them as they swim to safety. This plan turned out to be a near disaster. As soon as they got under the water, the men panicked. They began fighting the people who were trying to save them. They were kicking and screaming uh, and the, the rescuers called this an underwater wrestling match. They thought they were helping but they were working against their saviors. Thankfully, these divers were able to make it just a few hundred feet back to safety, and everyone was okay. But a few days later, these two British men go back into the cave, and they finally find the the soccer team. The only problem 
is that the soccer team is two and a half miles into the cave. Not a few hundred feet, two and a half miles into this cave. The world rejoices with this news that they are found, but the divers know that the hardest part is in front of them. That is going to be nearly impossible to get these kids out. What they see is that these are 12-year-old kids who even on their best day couldn't get out of this cave, but now they're 12-year-old kids who've not had anything to eat or drink in a week. That There is no way that they could make this journey out of the cave. Only the best divers in the world could make this trip. And they determine when they're up there that the kids are running out of oxygen in the cave, and they had to act quickly if they're going to save them. So they think back to their first rescue, and they said, well, if the pump divers nearly, nearly killed us and them by just going a few hundred feet, there's no way that we can get these kids out without killing us and killing them. And so these divers, with the help of another uh, cave diver who happened to be an Australian anesthesiologist, they concocted a plan where they would go in the cave and they would knock the kids out. They would put them to sleep. They would administer the same medication that you would get in the safety uh, of an operating room to knock you out, but they would administer it two and a half miles deep in a cave. They would knock the kids unconscious and they would carry them to safety. You watch the documentary and you're thinking, this is the most insane thing I've ever heard in my entire life. There's got to be a plan B. There's no way they're actually going to do this. But it's not. They go through with it. So this team of amateur cave divers, armed with anesthetics, dives deep into the cave to rescue these boys. They administer the medicine, and they begin to carry the boys out through this raging underground river. And the risks are pretty clear. If one of their masks leaks, they die. If the medicine wears off and the kid wakes up, both of them will likely die. And in a dive that only a few people in the world are able to do, these men do it while carrying a lifeless body next to them. And since it's an actual event, I'm not going to spoil the ending. You know that all, all 13 of them make it out alive. I still think back on it and marvel at the bravery and the heroism of these men. They carried these boys to salvation. These boys were certain to perish, no doubt. They had no hope of survival. They couldn't make it an inch on their own. They were helpless unless someone would come to them and someone would take them all the way to safety. They couldn't contribute a thing. Their position was so helpless, was so hopeless that they had to be knocked unconscious to receive salvation. If they were to try to contribute to their rescue in the slightest, they would have died. This soccer team needed a Savior who would enter the darkness, a Savior who would risk his own life to save them. But we are a team just like them, a team that because of our sin and rebellion are a lot farther than two and a half miles from safety, a team that is an ocean, a universe away from salvation, a people who are in even more desperate position than these boys in a cave. But the good news is that we have a Savior who is even better 
than these two men. A Savior who would enter an even darker and a scarier place, a more dangerous place than the Tamuang Cave. A Savior who would come much further than halfway around the world to save us. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. That the Lord of glory would come down to save us. That the second person of the Trinity would leave the glory of heaven and take on flesh to rescue us. That he would enter a world that is much darker and more broken than the deepest cave that you could imagine. That he wouldn't just risk his life to save you. But he would freely give his life for you. Because he would enter the cave of death that he might bring you to safety. Christmas is proof that there is nowhere that Jesus won't go to save you. He will go much farther than two and a half miles in a cave to get his children. There is no place that is too low. There is no place that is too far away. No situation that is too desperate. There is no one who is too bad. No one who is too needy, no one who is too far for Jesus to go. But what do you have to do to be rescued by Jesus? What do you have to do to get this salvation? All you have to do is to be needy enough to receive it. To try to earn it. To try to swim alongside of Jesus to your salvation. You'll miss the whole thing completely. The gospel is a message of surrender. When you see yourself as the one who was stranded in the cave of misery and sin, you can receive the rescue of God. If you are proud and you're trying to work with God in order to earn your salvation, you'll never make it to safety. But what I want us to think about in closing is the joy that this salvation brought. When the boys knew that they had no hope, When they were rescued, you could see the joy on their face. You saw tears of joy from the parents and the family of these children. But what I want us to think about is not the salvation, not the joy that our salvation brings to us, but I want us to think about the joy that our salvation brings to God. One of the things that you notice in the rescue is how the events change the lives of the rescuers. You know, you don't become uh, an expert cave diver by being the life of the party. Uh, These guys didn't really fit in the mainstream of life. But you could see how it transformed their life, how it gave them a renewed joy and sense of purpose in life, the joy that it brought them to save these children. But what I want us to think is, what about God's rescue of us? We're tempted to think that God saves us while rolling his eyes. He's really kind of put off by having to save us. That he saves us because he has to, not because he wants to. That God signed up for this deal a long time ago and he's stuck in a contract. And he just can't wait for the contract to run out. It's a bit like me giving out candy on Halloween. You know, I start out strong. I'm giving handfuls of candy, even the good stuff that I'll give out. But by the end of the night, I'm cynical and I'm stingy with the candy. I'm giving out milk duds and banana Laffy Taffy because that's the worst candy ever. And teenagers are coming up to my house with pillowcases, not dressed up and not saying thank you or trick or treat. 
And I roll my eyes and I'm mad at them, and I realize that they're probably mad at me because I'm giving them milk duds and banana laffy taffies, and it's just not a good situation. But I would be a terrible savior because I don't, I don't like being gracious. But Zephaniah shows us an entirely different picture of God. This is not a picture of me on Halloween. God does not give milk dud grace to his children. He's not pouting in heaven. I've got to forgive another one? I can't believe it. If you know anything about the book of Zephaniah, you likely know one verse and one verse only. Zephaniah 3.17. It's the John 3.16 of the Minor Prophets. Everyone knows it or has heard of it. But it might be familiar to us. It might be on your wall somewhere. But I don't want us to miss what it is saying. The joy that God gets when He saves us is infinitely greater than any joy that you will ever experience on this earth. That His delight in saving you is greater than your delight in receiving His salvation. That God is happier to give you the gift of salvation than you are even to receive it. That it brings more joy to Him than it does even to you. Verse 17, God rejoices over His children with gladness. He quiets us in His love. The picture you get there is of a mother holding a small child, singing lullabies over this small child. Her heart is bursting with joy. The hormones are kicking in. This is, this is heaven on earth. Imagine that picture. And then multiply it times a billion. That is the joy that God gets in saving His children. That's what God thinks about when He thinks about you, His child. The joy that you bring to Him. All of heaven exults with the child of God. They exult with loud singing, not with mumbling or with half-hearted singing to a song they don't know. God delights to redeem His children. It is a project He's been working on for all of time. He loves to redeem His children. It is a project that will end one day. A project that will end with the final and ultimate day of the Lord that is yet to come. And as we celebrate Jesus' first coming at Christmas, we anticipate His second coming, that great and ultimate day of the Lord. And that day, that day that is yet to come, that day that is unknown but is in the future, certain that it will happen, that day will be a day of judgment and a day of salvation for each of us in this room. It will be a day in which God punishes all evil and all sin. He punishes all of those who have done evil and sinned. For those who are punished will be separated from God for eternity in hell. But it is also a day of salvation. It is a day in which the people of God will be rescued and acquitted and joined together in the presence of God for all of eternity. And so how do you know if that day will be a day of judgment or a day of salvation. It's not a matter of doing or achieving 
or of earning. It is a matter of believing and receiving. That day is a day of salvation for anyone and everyone who will receive by faith pardon for their sins and the righteousness of God that is ours in Christ. It is a day of salvation for the humble, a day of salvation for the lowly, for the lame, and for the needy, and a salvation that is offered to you today in Christ, that there is forgiveness for your sins. And so will you place your faith in Christ, and will you find that on that last day, on that great and final day of the Lord, that it will be for you a day of joy, a day of singing, a day of feasting, a day in which all brokenness and all sadness will go away forever, a day of praise, and a day of joy, because we know that our Savior has come to save us from our sins. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would take this word and that you would use it, that you would multiply it uh, for your glory. Lord, help us as we reflect upon uh, what our Savior has done for us. Help us to believe that you delight to forgive sinners, that you delight when we come to you in faith and in repentance and to receive us with great joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name.